The New York Phil story, made in New York, is supported by the New York Philharmonic. The New York Phil is as dynamic and electric as the city it calls home. Experience pulse racing performances by the orchestra and intimate concerts that shine the spotlight on star soloists. Discover new works by today's leading composers and revel in the classics as only the New York Phil can bring to life. From the magic on stage to the community that's thriving inside David Geffen Hall. Get your tickets today at nyphil.org. A heads up to our audience. Today's episode may not be suitable for all listeners. It contains discussions of self-harm and school violence. Listener discretion is advised. The New York Philharmonic was in the middle of an afternoon subscription concert when suddenly the orchestra manager rushed on stage and told the audience the terrible news. John F. Kennedy had been shot and killed. The Philharmonic canceled the rest of the concert and sent the audience home. I was at home having lunch when the news came over the TV. I was only 11, not quite old enough to understand the calamity the grown-ups were experiencing. But I got a hint of it when my father, Leonard Bernstein, came home early from that concert, and he and my mother sat on the edge of their bed together and sobbed. Gradually, our house filled up with friends and relatives. All of them clustered around the TV in the library, watching the news, drinking, smoking, crying and crying. After such an unthinkable episode of violence, and God, we've had many, we feel so helpless, so utterly abandoned by good fortune, abandoned by goodness itself. Over the course of his life, my father's response in such situations was to continue making music. After the Kennedy assassination, he immediately arranged to conduct the Philharmonic two days later, on a nationwide live television broadcast. For the next 80 minutes, the New York Philharmonic, under the musical direction of Leonard Bernstein, they performed Mahler's Symphony No. 2, The Resurrection, to provide a drop of comfort and beauty to a devastated nation. A day later, my father said the words that, I'm sorry to say, get quoted all too often. This will be our reply to violence, to make music more intensely, more beautifully, more devotedly than ever before. While my father's words rose out of Kennedy's death, they also happened to perfectly express the ethos of the New York Philharmonic since its earliest days. I'm Jamie Bernstein, and this is the NY Phil story, Made in New York. There's a piece the Phil has traditionally performed each time they mourn a great hero. They played it after the deaths of Gershwin and Toscanini. They played it after the losses of Franklin D. Roosevelt and, yes, John F. Kennedy. 
That piece is the noble, somber second movement of Beethoven's Symphony No. 3. Beethoven's Symphony No. 3, known as the Eroica Symphony, was a kind of groundbreaking work, not just in music history, but also in Beethoven's own life. I'm Dr. Erica Berman. I'm the director of the Ira F. Brilliant Center for Beethoven Studies at San Jose State University in California. This symphony was composed shortly after a very significant episode for Beethoven, which was his coming to terms with the fact that he was going irreversibly deaf. This was something that had been coming on for several years. And in the summer of 1802, on the advice of his doctor, he had gone and spent a few months in the village of Heiligenstadt to the north of Vienna and rest with the idea that with some treatments, he would be able to get some of his hearing back and be on the road to recovery. And it was during that summer that he finally came to accept that this was never going to happen and that his hearing would continue to decline. And of course, for a performing musician, that's a disaster. So his career as a performing pianist, which is what he was primarily known for, was over. Also, his social life was going to be hugely impacted. He was already feeling isolated by the fact that he was struggling to hear. So while he was in Heiligenstadt, he wrote an extraordinary document, a sort of last will, combined with a letter to his brothers. It's a tough read, all right. Beethoven describes sitting in a field in the country with friends. His companions can hear the sounds all around them. Birds, laughter, shepherds playing flutes, and singing. But for Beethoven, there was simply nothing. He felt so desperate and alienated that he considered ending his life. But, he wrote, art alone deterred me. He came to the acceptance that he was going deaf and decided that he was going to grab fate by the throat, not let this hold him back. He was taught that his talent, his gift, was owed to humanity. I'm Jan Swafford. I'm a composer and writer, and I've written biographies of various people like Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, and Charles Ives. Heroica. The Third Symphony was written about Napoleon. It's the story of a hero and the career of a hero in the world. It was a symphony about the most powerful man in the world. Napoleon had been the great heroic figure in post-revolutionary France as someone who had risen up from humble origins to become one of the most powerful men in Europe. Something that 50 years earlier was not possible, not thinkable. Beethoven was deeply stirred by the egalitarian ideals of the Enlightenment. For him, Napoleon was the symbol of the grand new possibilities for their fellow man. The sense of striving towards a better world and all men become brothers, all of these sentiments of togetherness. So when he got the idea for the Eroica, Beethoven wanted to connect his really deeply felt Enlightenment ideals to his music. 
in a new way. It's a story of a hero and what a hero does in the world. And it was going to be called Bonaparte. That title was retracted when Beethoven learned that Napoleon had crowned himself emperor. Beethoven was so disillusioned by what he saw as just a kind of power grab that he tore up the title page of his score on which he'd written that this was called the Bonaparte Symphony after Napoleon. And eventually it was published just under the title Symphony Eroica, Heroic Symphony, without reference to a specific individual. The first movement of the Eroica has been felt from the beginning, and I think accurately, to be a portrait of a battle or a military campaign. And so in the story of the piece, what happens after the battle is you bury the dead. Now, this was the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, and there were a whole lot of dead across Europe and a whole lot of funerals and funeral marches in the streets all the time. And the most famous funeral marches were French, and he used those sort of as the model for his funeral march. The listener, without any context, doesn't know who's this funeral march for. That's left ambiguous by Beethoven. He took this idea of a funeral march and just expanded it in the most radical ways into a complex and far-ranging form that is tragic and inspiring. And the emotions in this are a kind of portrait of the process of mourning in our lives. There's one very significant thing about it, I think, and this is a funeral march that is not religious at all. It has no relationship to religious music. It's a humanistic funeral march. Beethoven had not forgotten God. He was going to come back to that. He was going to write religious music. But in this, it is entirely about this world. The first time the Philharmonic performed the funeral march as a standalone piece was in February of 1848 in a tribute to Felix Mendelssohn, who had died just three months before. They would perform it again 17 years later at the end of a time of profound national upheaval. But first, they had to survive that long themselves. In the rough-and-tumble artistic world of the 19th century, orchestral societies failed for any number of reasons, and more than a few folded in their first decade. But the New York Philharmonic hung in there, they focused on the quality of the music, attracting ever more music lovers to their concerts so that by their 15th season, they even needed a larger concert space. So they moved into the Academy of Music in Lower Manhattan. But in the 1860s, the outbreak of the Civil War brought new financial concerns for the Phil, and worries about safety too. Not only did they have to stay afloat at a time of great insecurity, but they were also located in a city at war with itself. New York was a northern city, but New York's economy was intertwined with the South, and therefore to the South's brutal practice of slavery. New York City is a very fascinating case to study in terms of the Civil War. My name is Greg Young, the co-host of the Bowery Boys New York City History Podcast. 
It's very obviously a northern city surrounded by union-sympathizing states. But, you know, New York is also a commerce city. It is a city that has so many of its purse strings tied to the South. So because of that, there is a lot of sympathy towards the Southern cause here in New York. That sympathy toward the South was clearly visible in the city's attitudes toward Lincoln. Lincoln was not beloved in New York. I'm Harold Holzer from Hunter College, and I write about Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln visited once as president-elect, and Walt Whitman was trapped in traffic on a trolley of some kind and on the upper deck. So he was outdoors. When he saw Lincoln's procession arrive, and he noticed that when Lincoln got out, there was not cheering, not booing, just sort of a deathly silence. And he thought if someone had a knife here, it would not be surprising if someone tried to attack him here. That's how tense the relationship was. Wealthy New Yorkers, with their financial ties to the business of slavery, certainly had their reasons to dislike Lincoln. But New York's poorest residents had their reasons, too. They certainly didn't like him in the middle of the war when the military draft was imposed because rich people could buy themselves out of the service. And of course, many people who were less wealthy couldn't do that. Hence the expression, a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. So you had really an incredible divide here in New York. And all of that came to a head in July of 1863. The city literally erupted for several days. All of which led to death and destruction and anti-Black activities and lynchings. They were called the draft riots, and they were taking place practically on the New York Philharmonic's doorstep. Just a few blocks away, Union troops armed with cannons were confronting rioters. It was one of the most violent incidents in New York City history. When the Civil War ended, New Yorkers were elated, and cannon fire was put to a happier purpose. Cannon were shot off, fireworks were exploded over cities across the North. There was enormous joy. After that, the city's formerly queasy relationship with the president changed for the better. Things are forgiven when wars end. But once the celebrations were over, the nation had to deal with the brutal aftermath of the war. Nearly three-quarters of a million people were dead. And even after a peace agreement was reached, it seemed entirely possible that violence could still erupt again. And sure enough, in a shocking turn of events, the war claimed one more victim. Stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. Music helps us celebrate, contemplate, cope, and connect. And we've got the stories to prove it. Join me, Terrence McKnight, for the new season of The Open Ears Project, a podcast in which people tell us about the piece of classical music that has meant the most to them 
that music might even wind up being meaningful for you. The Open Ears Project. Listen now wherever you get podcasts. This is the NY Phil story. I'm Jamie Bernstein. Let's return to the days right after the end of the Civil War. On April 14, 1865, just five days after Lee had surrendered his forces to Grant, Abraham Lincoln and his wife went to Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., with its flag-draped balconies and George Washington's picture perched on the railing. In the presidential box, President Lincoln sat in a walnut rocking chair that had been moved in specifically for this occasion. The play was a hit comedy called Our American Cousin, about the culture clash between a brash American and his landed English cousins. While Lincoln sat watching the show, the actor John Wilkes Booth crept into the presidential box pulled out the pistol he had concealed in his pocket and fired one shot into the back of Lincoln's head. Booth dropped the pistol, leaped over the balcony railing, and fled. While the president fought for his life, news of his grave injury traveled around the country. Nobody had their iPhone out, but the word got out. Telegraph lines, speed news very quickly from city to city. And the New York Herald, one of the major papers in New York, not a very friendly one to Lincoln, but they do something akin to breaking news on CNN. They issue a series of editions over the course of the night and into the early morning, each with a different medical bulletin on Lincoln's condition and an update on the identity and pursuit of the murderers. And then his death at seven in the morning is quickly transmitted around the country as well. The timing of Lincoln's death turned out to have one very particular resonance. It's a holy weekend for Christians and Jews. It's the end of the Passover holiday for Jews. So they're in synagogue on the morning that Lincoln is announced dead and they hear it from the pulpit. And there is a sense that the sacrifice and the resurrection are happening in real time to a real secular leader. Lincoln is the martyr who gave his life that others can be freed. He died for his nation's sins, like Jesus. Jews now react to him as they would to Moses, who's the hero of the Passover story. He's led people to the promised land. He's led people to freedom, but he hasn't seen the promised land himself. The day Lincoln's death was announced, businesses in the city were closed and crowds gathered. Walt Whitman traveled to Manhattan from Brooklyn and he wrote of what he saw. All Broadway is black with mourning. The facades of the houses are festooned with black. Great flags with wide and heavy fringes of dead black give a pensive effect. Toward noon, the sky darkened and it began to rain.
On April 21st, Abraham Lincoln's casket was placed in a train car draped in black, and the president's body began making its way from Washington back home to Illinois. The funeral train would stop in 10 cities along the way, each of which would pay their respects to Lincoln. The New York Phil didn't perform during the funeral in New York, but the specter would linger in the minds of New Yorkers, so much so that the orchestra felt compelled to honor the fallen president during their final concert of the 1865 season. The program had originally included the entirety of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, but the orchestra members universally felt that the last movement, the Ode to Joy, was not appropriate for this moment. So the Philharmonic decided to cut that movement and add a different Beethoven composition to the beginning of the concert. They chose, of course, the Funeral March from the Eroica. The Funeral March starts with great gravity. It sort of conjures up the world of a military parade. It's slow, it's mournful, and the basses are imitations of rolling drums under the melody. This is something that obviously evokes a grand procession. This is obviously a public figure. This is something that involves collective mourning, not just great sadness, but also great tragedy and a sense of a kind of fateful death. The funeral is a huge event in New York City. Thousands of people line the tracks day and night. There are soldiers on guard and watching him, guarding as the train goes by, and it's lit. So it's quite a sight for people. Then there's a middle section of the piece, this very stately fugue that grows and grows. Into something that's one of the most exalted moments in the whole musical repertoire. This fugue is for a lot of people, I think, one of the reasons they became a musician, and that's certainly true of me. It seems somehow to be a distillation of human aspiration and nobility. His remains come in to the train station, not too far from where Penn Station operates now. And his coffin is placed at the top of the interior staircase at City Hall. 
and people begin to walk by the coffin. They come up one stairway, they go down another, and it goes on all day and all night. At the very end, the music kind of dissolves. So the melody that we heard at the beginning, we hear in little fragments, and that's almost like the depth of feeling has become so overwhelming that the melody just has to dissolve rather than, rather than come to a stop. The music just seems to dissolve with kind of distant cries into silence. On April 29, 1865, the New York Philharmonic performed the last concert of their 23rd season at the Academy of Music. In the program is a notice saying, The entire community of this city shares with the nation the deep grief into which our land has been plunged. While thus sorrowing, it has been thought a fitting tribute to our departed head, to prefix to the program of the concert, the funeral march from Beethoven's Third Symphony, which was expressly composed for the occasion of the death of a great hero. Which leads us now to wonder, which particular hero might Beethoven have been commemorating since he had so vigorously erased Bonaparte's name from the title page of his symphony? I think the fact that Beethoven didn't put a name on the symphony as it was finally published means that it doesn't have to be a particular figure. Ultimately, he left that up to the listener's imagination so that you kind of have to work. You're, you're thinking about this incredible funeral march, but it's making you reflect on the nature of heroism generally. What does it mean to be a hero? What does it mean to mourn? What does it mean to mourn? In particular, how do we mourn the repeating episodes of senseless violence that seem to be our country's curse? For the New York Philharmonic, as well as for my father, whatever the answer might be, it always has to include music. That ethos, still carried forward today by the musicians of the New York Philharmonic, has comforted communities far beyond the five boroughs. I performed for the kids at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, about a month after the school shooting there. One of the toughest performances I ever did, but also one of the most meaningful ones. Hi, I'm Anthony McGill, and I'm the principal clarinetist of the New York Philharmonic. I think 
after these horrible tragedies, we're often left feeling helpless. You know, how do you how do you grieve properly? Is that is that a thing? Do you is there a way to grieve? I'm Alex Kaminsky, director of bands at Vandercook College of Music here in Chicago, Illinois. But before Vandercook College, Alex was the band director at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. 2018, that would have been my third year teaching at Stoneman Douglas. The band was very much a family. At Stoneman Douglas, our older students took the younger students under their wing. It was all about welcome to the family. Uh, the day of the shooting, we lost two freshmen, two of our kids. And that hit them hard. Those two students were Alex Schachter and Gina Montalto. After the shooting, the school closed down. Alex Kaminsky and his son, a freshman at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, went home together, trying to process the trauma they had just experienced. After three days of nearly wordless paralysis, Alex's son picked up his instrument. On the other side of the house, we hear trumpet playing. And my wife and I look at each other, and it was the first time we smiled in like three days. At that moment, I realized that we needed to get the kids together to not only be together, but also to play together. With the school still closed, Alex reconvened his band at a nearby middle school. Together for the first time since the shooting, Alex spoke to his students. I told them before we played it, I said, just allow whatever emotions you have inside of you to come through in your playing. So we played through it, and there was something different coming out of those kids when they played that piece. The music-making process was very raw and necessary. These kids loved music, you know. In the midst of all this loss, Alex had some urgent decisions to make. Before the shooting, the band had been chosen to play at Carnegie Hall for a band festival. But in the face of so much trauma, how could he ask the students to travel away from their families? My initial gut reaction was to cancel the trip. It's in three weeks. We've all been through something very difficult. And I certainly don't expect that we would go. And the parents and the students said, no, no, we need to go. We're not going to let fear paralyze us. We're going to overcome evil 
through making music, which is a power that is a good thing in this world. And that's when we adopted Leonard Bernstein's quote to make music more intensely, more beautifully, more devotedly than ever before. That was her mantra. And so, a mere three weeks after the shooting, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Band traveled to New York and took the stage at Carnegie Hall. They dedicated that program to the two students that we lost. That was one of the most emotional experiences that I've ever had on a stage. The closing number was the finale from Mahler's Third Symphony which starts very quietly and it's basically a one long crescendo that ends gloriously. wasn't a dry eye in the house. As the hall absorbed the final notes, the audience rose to its feet and the fervent applause rolled on and on and on. In fact, it lasted for a full four minutes. When you go to New York, you can't not go to the New York Phil <laughs> if you're instrumental musicians. At intermission, they asked all of us to go to the green room and in walk all the principal players of New York Phil. The students made an instant connection with the Philharmonic principal players and invited two of them down to Florida to play a concert with their band. Hi, I'm Joseph Alessi. I'm the principal trombone of the New York Philharmonic. Alex Schachter was the trombone student who passed away and the family, I believe, asked if I could come. And my wife and I got plane reservations that same day. It's a little overwhelming to take that invitation and say, wow, what can we do? You know, but then we realized that they wanted to hear our music. They wanted to have us work with the band members. They wanted the music to help find some closure. I got to spend time with the students. I got to play in their band with them. It's hard to put into words what that meant to them and to me. But for them, especially because they were music students, there weren't very many ways that they could put into words how they could you know, remember their classmates. I think there's something that happens when you're making music with other people. Because you're not only now communicating with the audience, but you're communicating with the others with whom you're making music. And that's what was happening with my students. Everything was being dedicated to 
those that we lost. There was an instrument company and I think they made 50 trombones to donate to the event. And there was a special trombone for Alex that was engraved for him and it was sitting on a chair during the concert. One of the connections that the school had with the New York Philharmonic and Leonard Bernstein is that that concert was called Our Reply. Our Reply, you know, to violence and to all of those things is music. That was their reply to this. Those students also felt that that was the only thing they could do in that moment. Being able to make music was like a pressure valve. You were able to pour out rather than suppress your emotions. That along with the power of music to speak to you personally as you're making music with other people was what helped my students to move forward. There is no one way to grieve. And yet one way that we as musicians do that is by playing music and performing music in honor of those who we may have lost. And it's a really powerful way of sending a message of community. It can be a gift for an orchestra and an ensemble to give out to the world. Like, we're here with you. That's what music can do. They wanted us to be there and to help with that healing process. You know, I hope I, I don't want to see another event like that. I really don't. But if, if music is some way to help out, we will be there again for sure. Coming next week on the NY Phil Story, the New World Symphony in North Korea. It's really unbelievable when you think about it, how many pieces the Philharmonic has premiered and how a lot of these works happen to be some of the most alive pieces in the classical repertoire, I think. Are we playing something that's historic? Is this a historical moment or not? We don't really know. This might well be the last place on Earth I expected to be broadcasting from, but tonight we bring you this historic concert by the New York Philharmonic at the East Pyongyang Grand Theater. And as we were leaving the stage, one or two of us started to wave to the audience, and some of them waved back, and then everybody was waving at everybody else. We had made a, a human connection with these people. If you or someone you know is considering suicide or self-harm, please get help. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 988. You can also find national and international resources on our website at nyphilstory.com. 
This is the NY Phil story made in New York, produced by WQXR in partnership with the New York Philharmonic and hosted by me, Jamie Bernstein. Our production team includes Lauren Purcell Joyner, Helena de Groot, Sapir Rosenblatt, Laura Boyman, Elizabeth Nonemaker, Eileen Delahunty, Christine Herskovitz, Natalia Ramirez, and Ed Yim. Our engineering team includes George Wellington and Ed Haber. Production assistance from Ben James, Jack Fillimore, and Mary Mathis. Special thanks to Monica Parks, Adam Crane, Gabe Smith, and the New York Public Radio Archives 